a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Right. Welcome back, everyone. Nathan Rome is with you today. And we've got the Honorable Brian Peckford on. Mr. Peckford was born in Newfoundland. He earned a Bachelor of Education from Memorial University and has since completed some postgraduate work in English literature, education, psychology, and French literature. He worked as a high school teacher before being elected as the third premier of Newfoundland from March of 1979 to March of 1989. He's the last living first minister who helped draft the Constitution Act, which contains the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And now Mr. Peckford maintains a blog at Peckford 42. Welcome, Mr. Peckford. Thank you, sir. So um, we don't have a ton of time, but I would like for you to uh, give us a bit of background on yourself. So if you can kind of tell us how you went from... uh, being born in Newfoundland to the premier. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, after I had completed high school, I went to Memorial University, as you said in the introduction. And after I graduated from Memorial University, I went teaching high school teaching in rural Newfoundland. And um, it was in, in the rural Newfoundland that I became more interested in provincial politics. And I ended up running uh, for the uh, MLA for the riding in which I was teaching. And that riding, as a matter of fact, had never been conservative in its history, from 1832 to 1972. Wow. And so I was elected in 1972 as the first conservative MLA ever elected for that area of the province. It was the only one left that had ever been conservative in its history. Uh, so I was elected in 1972 to the legislature of Newfoundland, and then I served uh, for a few months as a executive assistant to the then premier, and then he appointed me minister uh, of municipal affairs, and then I went on to be minister of a number of other portfolios, and then that premier uh, resigned and uh, in 1979, so I was in the legislature from 72 to 79 as an MLA minister, executive assistant, and so on. And uh, when he resigned, I uh, threw my hat in the ring. And I think it was nine of us were running for the leadership at the time. And uh, I ended up winning the leadership at a, at a convention, provincial convention, <clears throat> and automatically became premier. Uh, and in the same way as you're happening in your province right now, where Daniel Smith automatically was premier after he won the leadership. And then I called my own election a few months later and got my own mandate. And then I served as premier for 10 years, from 1979 to 1989. And it was during my time as premier early on in 81, 82, that the issue of the Constitution came up, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And so I was one of the first ministers, uh, one of the leaders of a government in Canada that helped negotiate the uh, Constitution Act of 1982, which contained the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Unfortunately, I'm the only First Minister left. It was just this First Minister's signature on that document, and I'm the only one now left. Mm-hmm. I was one of the younger First Ministers, obviously, at the time, and uh, so I'm the only one now still alive. 
whose name was on that original document that uh, made possible the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And so when the pandemic uh, hit, or the so-called pandemic hit, at least as declared by most of the governments of Canada and the federal government, <clears throat> I became concerned with the way the governments were handling uh, this so-called pandemic because I could see early on that a lot of the science was not settled and that um, the various um, measures that were going to be used to combat it were experimental and that the pharmaceutical companies were not standing behind their product, their vaccine. Today, almost anywhere in the world, Western world, if you buy a product, there's a guarantee for a period of time on it mm-hmm. that the maker of that product stands behind it. Here's a pharmaceutical co- company who are giving life and death treatment and will not stand behind their, their product, which they say is effective. Uh, I was also very, very concerned that the measures that the government were bringing in violated the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which I was a part of creating. And so I became very vocal after <clears throat> the beginning of spring of 2020 and have been ever since, alleging that the mandates that were brought in by the provinces and the federal government did not meet the conditions of the uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And to that end, and to make certain that I could uh, not only talk the talk till I'd walk the walk, I initiated the lawsuit through the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, which is headquartered out of Alberta, uh, to challenge the federal government's travel mandate under Section 6 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which says everybody has the right to travel anywhere in Canada or to leave Canada. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, that uh, lawsuit is ongoing to this day and uh, has not been finalized yet. And so uh, I've been one of those uh, vocal critics of all the governments of Canada uh, and the way and the mandates that they brought in them, the way they handled uh, this from both a scientific point of view, but more particularly my expertise is in the constitutional side of things, and from a constitutional point of view, because they have violated several sections of the Charter, and the one that I've challenged in court is the federal mandate under Section 6 of the Charter. So, essentially, I guess that's perhaps the shortest introduction I could possibly give. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, so I kind of want to go back to the, we're going to have a big focus on the Charter of Rights today, obviously. Yes. And um, so I, I kind of want to make sure people have uh, maybe a bit of the history here on it. So if you can educate us a little bit. So what when the, the Charter was being drafted, what was that born out of? Or why why at that exact time in history was... Um, was that considered required? And what were the key driving forces behind it? Well, a, a, a good question, and it, it goes into history a little bit, and that, that always takes a bit of time, but I'll try to be as short as I can. Hmm. When Canada was created as a country in 1867, it was created under what was called the BNA Act, the British North America Act of 1867. That's what created Canada. And that was an act of the, of the British Parliament, because we were... Uh, coming together as a country, mm-hmm. four separate colonies of Britain, Upper Canada, Lower Canada, which is Ontario and Quebec, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. So when Canada was formed, it was formed out of four British colonies, and those four that I just mentioned. Later, the others came along, 
and we ended up with 10 provinces, three territories, and a federal government, which we have today. There was no written Bill of Rights in that original document which created Canada. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because Britain, the country which we were a part of, did not have a written Bill of Rights. They went by precedent and British common law, mm -hmm. unwritten British common law. Okay. But we were living on the continent of North America where the elephant to the south, which was created before us in 1776, was very strong on a Bill of Rights. And after they were created in 1776, in 1791, they had a Bill of Rights, a written Bill of Rights or written guarantees of individual rights and freedoms. Mm -hmm. So here we were on the northern part of the same continent as them without one. So from the time that we were created as a country, there was always the concern that why don't we have a written Bill of Rights? The other country to the south on this that left England through revolution, we left uh, England, if you will, or part of ways to some degree peacefully through 1867 negotiation. And so our traditions were more in line with Britain than were the United States who actually physically through revolution separated. Mm -hmm. So all through the early part of the 20th century there was this concern and from time to time a movement tried to get uh, a charter of rights and freedoms in our constitution. It happened over 10 times, I think, uh, did uh, various leaders try to do this. One of the obstacles to doing this was that we were not completely uh, sovereign and that any changes to our constitution would still have to go back to London. Mm -hmm. Okay, Because in the original document, it was a creation of an act to the British Parliament and then the Canadian Parliament was created. But it did not give any amending formula how we could amend the Constitution in the future. And the only way it could be amended was through approval in London. So the first thing we had to do if we wanted to change our Constitution was perhaps patriate our Constitution. In other words, bring it to Canada so that everything that we did would be done in Canada, including changing the DNA Act, yes. our original document. That's what we did in 1981. So through the 60s and 70s, a greater realization that we needed to patriate the Constitution and have our own amending formula. Though could to patriate it unless we knew how we were going to change it in the future. Mm. And so the first initial thing in that agreement of 1981 and Constitution Act of 1982 was what is called patriation. In other words, moving all aspects of our sovereignty to Canada, including amending our own constitution, which meant we had to have an amending formula. And that was one of the sticky points of why we didn't get to where we are in 82 until then. There was no agreement between the provinces and the federal government of a new formula of how we would amend it. Mm -hmm. It always ran into trouble between the provinces and the federal government. In 1981, there was a new realization that we really needed to 
try again at this. And so that's what happened in 81. Over 17 months, that was negotiated, both to bring the Constitution home, have an amending formula, and since we're bringing it home, since we're changing it, let's put that Charter of Rights and Freedoms in it as well. Let's also put Aboriginal rights in it as well. Mm-hmm. Let's also put uh, equalization in it as well. Minority language rights. And what I'm trying to say here to you is that deal in 1981, which became the Constitution Act of 1982, was a package. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, because the emphasis on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms now, the Charter was bargained with these other items that I just mentioned. So it was a tough negotiation and why it took 17 months and almost failed. Because right up to the last minute, the last day, mm-hmm. the last few hours, that a proposal from me representing Newfoundland broke the impact, which brought about the Patriation Agreement, which became the Constitution Act of 1982. That happened in November 1981. So <clears throat> it's important for your listeners and viewers to know that there's a long history to this. It goes back to our British origin of no written Charter of Rights and Freedoms to our other neighboring countries to the South having a written Charter of Rights and Freedoms and being very strong on individual rights and freedoms. And so through the early 1900s, right up to 1981, there had been, before my time, a number of efforts made, over 10, over that decade, over that century, to try to bring in a written Charter of Rights and Freedoms, patriate the Constitution, and make up the other amending formula, and make the other changes necessary. So that's the history of it. And we were then successful in getting that Charter of Rights and Freedoms in that new document in 81, which became the Constitution Act of 1982. Okay. So, uh, and you bring up actually the U.S. quite a bit in that, and that's kind of one of the questions I had was, what uh, informing the exact sections of the Charter uh, what was the guide? Like, what did we use? Uh, was it just looking at the the neighbors to the south and saying, hey, they have these things we like, but we don't like these other things? Um, and then maybe that goes a bit further into um, the thing like the right to bear arms and where we are today. Like, we don't have that written in ours, but they do. So yeah. how did we form ours separate from them? We formed ours separate from them primarily through what was called, people get this confused, the Bill of Rights in Canada. So, what I left out deliberately, because I figured you were going to ask that question, it's better to answer it now, is that in 1960, John Diefenbaker, the Prime Minister of Canada from Saskatchewan, a rural lawyer who became Prime Minister, and was very keen on this business of individual rights and freedoms as a lawyer, introduced into the House of Commons and had passed a Bill of Rights of Individual Rights and Freedoms. But it was only a federal act. And as you know, Canada is made up of not just one government, it's made up of 11 (laughs) governments and three territories, right? So that Bill of Rights contained freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, but it only applied in federal jurisdiction. Okay. In areas where the federal government had control. Okay? So, as you know, a lot of um, Canada um, is controlled by powers that the province would have. So, it did not cover everybody. 
So that was another reason for the big push in the 70s and 80s, because we already knew we had a bill of rights, but that it wasn't complete. And in order to complete a bill which covered all of Canada, you had to do it through the Constitution. There was no other way to do it. If you did a provincial, it would only apply in the province. If it's a federal law, it only applies to the federal government and where the federal government had power. In order to do a complete Charter of Rights and Freedoms, you would have to do it through the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So our Charter of Rights and Freedoms is based partly on the Bill of Rights that was passed by John D. Baker in 1960. Mm -hmm. Okay, So that's the, sort of the history of it. So it was a, a recognition that we already had a bunch of uh, individual rights and freedoms identified through the Bill of Rights and that the Bill of Rights wasn't complete, did not cover all individual Canadians. And of course, on the history of the Bill of Rights in the United States. Okay. So uh, would there be any reason for why we don't have the exact same type of rights uh, built in as the Americans? Because referencing well, them a bit. Well, when you talk about the right to bear arms, because they had a revolution, that it was key to them. Mm -hmm. and, and the founders in, in the United States came at uh, the whole business of the Constitution quite differently. Yeah. And they're fighting about that today where it was to be a very small, limited government. Now, it's taken off, and even in the United States, so as a result of bad interpretations of the Constitution. But it's if you go back to the Federalist Papers and the Constitution of the United States itself, you will find that, and we can see that now playing out in the courts in the United States, where like mm -hmm. governors like Ron DeSantis and about 18 or 19 others have been able to gain, uh, through their Constitution, uh, what they had already, and which a lot of governors had, uh, what shall I say, loosely applied. And the federal government began to get more uh, aggressive in in, the, in pushing its jurisdiction in the United States. But they do have the same as us. It's a federation. The governors have power. The premiers have power. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the right to bear arms and things like that as a small government come out of the revolution in the United States where they didn't want to replace the king of England with a president who had just as much powers or didn't have any checks and balances. Yeah. Okay? So the right to bear arms comes out of the fact that they engaged in war in order to gain their independence and that they were still highly motivated by individual freedom and rights because that's why they left England in the beginning. Yeah. We didn't have that kind of history or culture. We did it through negotiation wanting to be independent. We didn't quite get rid of the king or the queen. Yeah, no, I find this all super fascinating. And who better to ask it of than the person that was there for drafting it? So um, one of the things I wanted to get on to was the interpretation of the charter. And this might be something that you're fighting today. And so we have all this different type of case law. We have the British common law. We have all the written stuff. What is your, your interpretation of how people are interpreting the charter today? Yes, well, here's my big argument, and, and why I, uh, not only on behalf of myself am I doing this, not am I doing it also on behalf of a lot of Canadians who have read the Charter and believe in its interpret inter interpretation that I give it, but I'm also doing it 
because I'm the only last living first minister. And I know that, for example, if Peter Lougheed, who represents the province that you live in, and Premier Blakeney in Saskatchewan nearby, and in your province of British Columbia, Mr. Bennett were alive, that they would be on my side in how we see the Charter of Rights and Freedoms being interpreted. So here's the, here's the thing. There are a number of sections in the Charter, Section 2, Section 6, Section 7, Section 15, all of which define the rights and freedoms of you for you and me as Canadians. Mm -hmm. But in Section 1, it says that it is possible for governments to override these rights and freedoms okay, under certain conditions. One of those conditions was that the intent of Section 1 was that that could only be overridden. Why go to all the trouble of putting this in the Constitution if you could, you know, override it willy-nilly on minor things? If there was, like, a war or insurrection or the existence of the state was at stake, okay? Mm -hmm. I argue that the intent of Section 1 being that, that the pandemic was not a war or insurrection, never met the test of a war or insurrection, or that the existence of the state was in question. So therefore, all of the measures that the governments have brought in, under the saying that they can do it because of Section 1, is incorrect. Mm -hmm. that, that the intent, and if you look at laws that have been interpreted by courts over the years, they do consider intent of the law. And as the last living First Minister whose signature is on that, I can, I can vouch for the fact that that was our intent at the time. Now, to give more clear credibility to that, that's Section 1. You only got to go down to Section 4, where war and insurrection is mentioned, if in fact you are going to extend the Parliament beyond five years. You could only do it in the case of war and insurrection. So, yeah. That was on our mind. The whole concept of war and insurrection was on our mind when we created this constitution. Number two, I argue that even if all of these lawyers and judges and others who now say that, uh, no, that we don't believe you that that intent is there, even though who better to ask than yeah. somebody who helped create it, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll forego their, their, uh, the, uh, their, manners, their lack of manners, their lack of courtesy, their lack of understanding that somebody else might know something just about this that they do, mm -hmm. okay, I'll concede. For the, only, I'll only concede for the point of argument. The second point is that even if that intent is to be challenged, the words in Section 1 itself says you can override that Section 2, 3, four, uh, 6, 7, and 15, all these rights and freedoms that we have, if you can demonstrably justify it. Now, in any interpretation of those words, demonstrably justified, being a former first minister for 10 years, being involved in politics for 50, one way or another. Mm -hmm. I, I first got involved in politics in October 1971. That's 51 years ago. Yeah. Almost to the, almost to the day. By the way, almost for the day, what we're thinking. 
51 years ago, just to say that I had a little bit of experience in this field, yeah. as most people know. Demonstrably justify in any normal interpretation today is, is that that government would have to do show that what they were doing to override outweigh the benefits, outweigh the costs. Okay, is this the notwithstanding and, and clause? What though? I say is that. Hmm? Oh, I was. Uh, is this falling into like the notwithstanding clause? So the no, no, no. That's not that's notwithstanding clause is different altogether. Okay. Okay, this has got nothing to do with the notwithstanding clause. This okay. has got to do just with section one, where governments have the right to override the right to freedom of Canadians in certain circumstances. One of those circumstances in that section one is if you can demonstrably justify yeah. what you're doing in a free and democratic society. I argue nobody's to this very moment has been able to uh, what shall I say counter that argument cost benefit analysis is what every government in Canada does mm -hmm. when they introduce new legislation to see and they'll say to their bureaucrats their deputy ministers or whatever or they'll hire an outside some uh, do a study on what we're going to do to see whether this is really valuable to do that this is really beneficial society to do. No government in Canada, territorial, provincial, or federal, did any cost-benefit analysis before they implemented these measures, which overrode our freedoms and rights as individual Canadians, as was in the Constitution. So, at the end of it all, like where we are now, um, do you kind of look back at anything and say, maybe... We should have wrote a certain section of the charter differently or put something in there. Maybe we should have had more. That's why I say to you, but that's why I say to you, how long did it take to amend the Constitution? Yeah. 1867 to 1981. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it wasn't just the charter. If we were just negotiating the charter, you're, you might have a legitimate point, but we were negotiating Aboriginal rights, equalization, minority language rights, an amending formula. Okay, all of these things were at play, and many others that got dropped off the table. So, number one, number two, so it, it's no good to go back and say we should have done this. Yeah, I always, when I was in, in power, I always said that's a facile argument because we can't go back. Yeah, do you have something that does must have something magical for us to be able to go back in time? Well, where's the time machine? Uh, where's, where's the Huxley's of this world? So to me, that's not an argument, right? Yep. We can always, you know, you can go back and say about, well, I should have done something when I was 12 or 15 or 20 years old or whatever. That gets you nowhere. The charter is what we have. It's a damn good piece of work mm -hmm. given under the auspices with, under which it was negotiated. It wasn't negotiated alone. It was negotiated with an amending formula. It was negotiated with Aboriginal rights. It was negotiated with all equalization, all those things. So we did get, and in any new charter, if you could ever get another one, you could be assured that negotiations would break down over the fact that you did not put anything in there with that, that suddenly we had a war, yeah. that the government couldn't have control for a brief period of time over how they were going to respond to this and perhaps temporarily suspend the rights and freedoms of individual Canadians for the society as a whole for a short period of time. So 
you know, it, it's, a, it's a useless argument. Mm-hmm. We have what we have. I know what we've intended, and I know what's written. So the point of, uh, to me, that argument is a deflection. For somebody who's got to argue with me, where is the cost-benefit analysis which is required on the demonstrably justified? Mm-hmm. There isn't one. What does demonstrably justify? That doesn't mean that. So if you're successful in your um, in the challenge that you have going, what's the intended outcome or what, what are you kind of um, looking for out of that? Well, my, mine is under the... If, in fact, the, the challenge that we've launched is successful, then that would mean that the federal government violated the Constitution, Section 6 of the travel mandate, and it would put into question the validity of all the other mandates that the provinces and the federal government put in place, which violated other sections of the Constitution. So I think it would give a lot of impetus to all of the other challenges that are out there, that they have likely more strength than they thought they had. Mm -hmm. And it would perhaps also restrain a lot of these lower court judges who have ruled against what I'm saying. Ruled against what I'm saying. They also, by the way, every one of those judges, and your viewers should know this, in every case brought up on the charter since in the last 40 years since the charter was in place, they have ignored the two principles which introduced the charter. The first words of the charter are, whereas this country is founded on the principles of the supremacy of God and the rule of law. You can go to all of the decisions that have been made today, and you will find that for some strange reason, judges have picked certain parts of the charter to enforce and has ignored other parts. Hmm. That is not their job. That is not their power. The All the charter is supposed to be considered in the rendering of a decision under the charter. And to ignore the supremacy of God and the rule of law to me means that just about all of the cases that have been heard today are really unconstitutional because what we have done through our laziness, through our laziness mm-hmm. more than anything else, we've allowed the law school and the judges of this country to interpret the charter incorrectly and said nothing about it. Then it becomes a precedent, then it becomes law. So we've got to go back to first principles here. I'm sorry about the phone. <laughs> I forgot to take it out of my office before I came on. No, that's all good. Um, there's always something that comes up. Sorry. No, all good. Uh, one of the things I wanted to get your opinion on too was just the use of, I guess, more so the RCMP by the federal government and some of the influence we're seeing uh, out on the coast, so like in Nova Scotia. But uh, do you have any kind of opinion on what's going on with them right now? And, and then further into provincial policing, because where you come from, Newfoundland has the constabulatory. So I'm just wondering if you th- think there should be a separation between the RCMP, the federal government, maybe there should be more buffers in place? I, I, I think that all the provinces should operate a police force that, in, that enforces the provincial law. The two largest provinces, Quebec and Ontario, have their own provincial police. Yeah. 
so should all the rest of the province. When I was Premier, I expanded the Newfoundland Constabulary to not only apply to provincial laws in the capital city, but also to outside. It's not, it wasn't complete when I left, but I was in the process of For example, the city of Corner Brook uh, has a provincial police force. Uh, parts of Labrador has a provincial police force, which I implemented. I expanded it. And I firmly believe that uh, the RCMP should be looking after federal law and international issues uh, for the sovereignty of the country, and that all the provinces should have their own provincial police force. And uh, I think that's one of the problems uh, with the RCMP is that it's gotten too broad to try to cover too many things. And all the provinces can do this. Yeah, they don't have. We don't have to change the constitution. Every one of the provinces that has the RCMP enforcing provincial law, that's on their contract mm-hmm. between the federal government and the provincial government. All the provinces have to do is say, when this contract is up, that's it. We'll be a federal force only. We'll, we'll start to institute our own provincial police force. Why a lot of the provinces haven't done that is a, is a big question to me. And that's one of the areas where we've really fallen down as a federation. We've allowed the federal government to enter fields of provincial jurisdiction. We've done it in health, for example. Health is exclusively provincial under the Constitution. Education is exclusively provincial under the Constitution. Yet, we keep taking federal money every year to support our health care, mm-hmm. giving the federal government more and more influence over health policy. Well, the provinces got what they asked for. You can't take 30 pieces of silver and not think that those who gave it are not going to have more control over you because they gave it to you. Yeah, and you know what? It's an interesting debate right now. It's obviously a very heated one in Alberta, um, but I know Saskatchewan's looking at it. Uh, BC's always kind of been looking at it. Even when I left Depot uh, back in 2011, uh, there was um, the negotiations for BC were ongoing as to whether they were going to resign for their contract and then all the other provinces were waiting behind that to see who was going to sign first and what the deal would be. Right. So it's interesting now we're back at it again and, and everything just kind of comes around. But they, they, I find the interesting part is the argument over budgets and resources when we have a clear uh, roadmap in Ontario and Quebec in front of us. So and we have a clear roadmap in the Constitution. That's mm-hmm. not because of Ontario and Quebec. It's because it's constitutional. Yeah, They just didn't sign a deal and create their own provincial force, which we can do under the Constitution. The Constitution allows the provinces to enforce their own laws. Yeah. And uh, we've taken, a lot of provinces have taken the easy way out. And now we're paying the price for it because now suddenly you don't have the federal state that was envisaged under the 1867 Constitution Act. You have by stealth by stealth, insidious erosion, right, and entry of the federal government in the areas of provincial jurisdiction that they have no business being in, except that the provinces all have to accept their share of the guilt in allowing it to happen. Well, and um, just so the listeners know, uh, and I'll put the link to your blog on this podcast when we put it up, but uh, even though you were conservative, you give it to both parties equally <laughs> and you are an equal critic of both. And it's very interesting. Some of the reads on there, um, cause you, you know, you're not just, uh, 
You're not just singing the praises of one party and, and putting down the other. And I think that's what we need more of is some critical eye on a lot of this stuff, especially from people like yourself who've been in the, the fight. Where I'm most frustrated today is that for so many Canadians to think that by changing the name of the leader mm -hmm. of one of the major political parties, and when I say major political parties, I'm talking about liberal, conservative, and NDP. Okay? The others have very minor parts to play at this point in time. So the major political parties in the House of Commons, where it counts, where you make the law, those three parties dominate. Okay? And Canadians still think that we can just flip the switch and put a name, a new name in, and that's going to somehow change the behavior of their party. Mm -hmm. The behavior of the Conservative Party has not changed one iota because this guy, Fully the Arab, is now, is now the leader. He might be a smart talker, more so than O'Toole. Right? He, he may espouse various ideas verbally, mm -hmm. but in his actions, he is absolutely no different than O'Toole, O'Shear, or any of the others that were the leaders, or Harper, or anybody else. And so I have come to the conclusion that what we need is a change in our system. Mm -hmm. The party has to be more accountable to their membership. The parliament has to regain its power back to the prime minister. So all this can be done without changing the constitution. MPs and parties have just got to be more responsible. Yeah. And I put out my own Magna Carta, which you can find on my uh, pexpro42.wordpress.com uh, 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 WordPress on my blog, which points out I actually give recommendations on how to get the system back mm -hmm. and make the political parties more honest, because they are not honest today. Now, no, many Canadians, right to this moment, will not accept what I just said. They're in denial. They just think that you can do a, a few window dressing with the Conservative Party or the Liberal Party or the NDP Party, and all will be fine, and we'll go back to sleep again and allow the federal government to continue to control our lives. Canadians, I have to tell you, as an 80-year-old who has been through the wars, I've been part of and negotiated with all these parties over time, that our system is broken. All of these major political parties are only carrying on a formula which has failed. Mm. And we need to do something drastically different. That's why I left the Conservative Party a year and a half, two years ago. I left it. And I campaigned for the People's Party of Canada in the last election, Mr. Bernier's party because he was the most honest of those that I saw out there, putting on his, on, his, um, on his website all of his expenses, how much he was getting paid, and so on. None of the other political parties are doing that. And uh, right today, right today, as we speak today, an MP can break the law and still serve in the Parliament of Canada. Mm -hmm. I've written, Mr. Collier, I've written all of the, the leaders said, why don't you go into the House of Commons tomorrow and amend the Conflict of Interest Act? So that if anybody breaks this act, any MP, they can no longer serve in this parliament. None of them will do it. I haven't even heard back from Mr. Polly yet. Really? When I, since I proposed that to him. So if you want to start somewhere, you can start real simple, not complicated. It's not complicated. Very simple. Have the major political parties of this country 
amend their existing legislation to ensure that the punishment for breaking a law, how can a law maker be a law breaker? Please <laughs> tell me. I mean, that sounds like Russia or China or North Korea or Venezuela somewhere. It doesn't sound like a democratic country. Mm-hmm. So when I, uh, when I elaborate all this like I'm doing now, most people, when this program is over, will eliminate this last part from their memory. And just think of what I said before that. They will not confront the reality that it's not the political party so much. It's the system. Our parliamentary system is broken. The prime minister and the premiers have taken over too much power and need to go back to the cabinet and need to go back to the parliament. Imagine the minister, former minister of justice right, of, of Canada wanting to appear before a parliamentary committee and was not allowed mm-hmm. during the, uh, the uh, SNC-Lavalin affair. Right? I mean, that is that that smacks of right totalitarianism. That doesn't smack of democracy. So we got to bring back our parliamentary committees to have power. And during the pandemic, all of the legislature should have been open. Yeah, that's what Section One says. You can do it if you demonstrably justify what you're doing in a free and democratic society. What does a free and democratic society mean? That means a parliament. That means being responsible to a parliament. Yet our parliaments were opened and shut as fast as they could be, and all of the power was given to the Minister of Health, the public health officer, who completely dropped the ball. Mm-hmm. Oh, I find it's very interesting when a issue comes up that you know the, the federal government, whoever is in power, uh, when they're going to get questioned on it, all of a sudden uh, we're on vacation or parliaments shut down for whatever reason. So. Or in the provinces, where you know they defer to the public health officer who's not elected. Mm-hmm. The people who are responsible to the taxpayers are the politicians, not the public health officer. The public health officer only got his or her power through the government and through the parliament. Yeah, and they're not—they're only responsible and report to the minister. The minister and the premier report to me and you. And that's who should be answering all the questions. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. I appreciate the the insight. Um, uh, one last question for you is kind of what does the future hold and where do we go from here? So okay. what, um, what should we be looking at? Like, should we be teaching a lot more politics in school so that people know this from an early age or? Yeah, I've got it right here on my Magna Carta, which you, you can find on my thing. One of the things in here is, that there should be new laws passed in Canada whereby civics is a mandatory subject in the schools of Canada, throughout all the schools of Canada, starting in grade 8. From grade 8 to grade 12. So 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. You've got five years of, of, of uh, civics education so that when a high school graduate comes out, at least they understand municipal, provincial, and federal, and who's responsible for what, have some grounding mm-hmm. right, as to how our country operates. I mean, just this past weekend, there were municipal elections in British Columbia, where I live now. And uh, in the largest city on Vancouver Island, which is only 40 kilometers from where I live, Nanaimo, population of 99,000, over 100 now, but that was in 2021, uh, 30, 33, 34% of the, pop, of the voters got out to vote. 
Yeah. And that is, that's surprising how the, the numbers are so low nowadays. Yeah. So people are not engaged in their poli- politics. And that's primarily because it's become so mesmerizing deliberately by a lot of the politicians that we leave it all to them to do. And we see them every four years and then get mad <laughs> when they didn't do what we want them to do, but we haven't spoken to them for four years. Yeah. The other thing I say to people in public meetings is, in your community, in your city, in your town, whoever your MLA is or MP is, you get together as a group and write a letter to your MLA and MP and say, we want to meet with you every quarter, four times a year for the time that you're in this parliament, for the time that you're in this legislative assembly. And then put them on the spot in a public meeting in your area as to did you, how did you represent me? in the last 90 days in the, in, the, in the parliament. Did you push for this? Did you advocate this, right? What, what are you doing to, right, represent me? If, in fact, every Canadian <coughs> region, uh, federal constituency and provincial constituency did that, right, yeah. in, in their various towns and cities, you would have a far more responsible MLA and MP who can get away with putting out in the mail, a brochure telling you what they did yeah. for you, how many more money they, more of your money they spent, as if you're supposed to be satisfied with that. No questions, no answers, just this brochure, this fancy brochure, paid for by who? So you and me. They should be forced to sit down, not only in their own legislative assembly, but in their own towns and cities that they represent, in between elections, and defend their policies defend their actions, and listen to what the citizens want. That's one way. The uh, Education is the other way, mm-hmm. uh, through having civics in the schools. The other way is to get Parliament back, get parliamentary committees back, to reduce the power of the First Minister, bring it back to the Cabinet, bring it back to the Parliament, and the political parties can do that if we as citizens get after them to do it. Well, I don't think we're going to get a better uh, schooling on how we should uh, take care of ourselves, take care of uh, uh, the rules and the laws that govern us and um, how best should people follow you or your work? Besides, is it just the, the blog? Yes, exactly. That's the best way to follow me. I do a lot of these things. I do three or four of these a week. Uh, but uh, yeah, they can look up online as to uh, different podcasts around the country. Uh, but the way where I write every day and where they can see how I'm thinking <laughs> every day is through Peckford 42, P-E-C-K-F-O-R-D, number four, number two, because that's the year I was born, 1942. Mm. So Peckford42 wordpress.com and you'll get exactly what I'm thinking. All right. Well, hang on the line for one second. I'm going to stop the recording. Thank you very much for being on here. And uh, I'll just have a few final words for you offline. Thank you very much.